Hello, listeners of the Monday Movies podcast. It is Luke here. I'm by myself. There's there's nobody else here. Um, but if you've listened to the Easter special of Monday Movies, then you know that we talk at the beginning of podcasts now. Apparently, that's a thing we do. Uh, this is a very special podcast edition uh, of an interview that went out on Monday, Easter Monday, which was the Bank Holiday Monday, which was the 22nd. Today is the 23rd. This is the full interview. We had to slightly cut it down uh, for broadcast, but this is the full, just over an hour uh, interview with John Glenn. Uh, If you sent in a question, it will be at the end, hopefully. Um, That is all I shall say at the beginning. I shall pass you over now to Duncan. Online, on Radio Player and on 106.6 FM, this is Wickham Sound. In this special programme, I'll be talking to film director John Glenn. Starting his career in the 1940s as a messenger boy, he went on to work in the sound department on The Third Man, before becoming second unit director on classic films like The Wild Geese and Superman. But he made his name as the man who defined the look of James Bond for a generation, directing all five Bond films of the 1980s, first with Roger Moore and then Timothy Dalton. I talked to him about working with Orson Welles, the joy of filming action scenes in the days before CGI, and of course, about all things Bond. But we started by discussing his very early start in the film business. You were very young when you took your first steps into the film world, 13 or 14 by my reckoning when you were a messenger boy. Was it something you knew from an early age that you wanted to be involved in? Absolutely not. You know, I was in the sea cadets. And I had a friend there who went into the camera department at Nettlefold Studios. And, uh, forgive my talk, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, he became a, a trainee in the camera department at Nettlefolds. And he used to talk about it and what have you. And uh, anyway, he told me one day there was a vacancy there because he, he had been the messenger boy and now he'd been promoted. So. I took, got on my bike and I went over to um, Nettlefold Studios, saw the commissioner, and he took one look at him and he said, oh, no, Sonny, you're too tall for the uniform. But I will ring my friend at Shepparton, which is a much bigger studio, and um, uh, go and see him and maybe you'll get a job there, which I did. And a few weeks later, um, I had a letter from the studio uh, from the personnel department for inviting me over for an interview for uh, be one of about 20 messengers um, which I took the job gladly and I, I sort of entered a, a wonderland for a young kid you know with people in costumes I think they were making a film called The Ideal Husband so they on the back lot they had uh, reproduced uh, Hyde Park and uh, there were all these carriages going around and all these ladies in crinoline dresses and the whole thing was just a wonderland and uh, the people were so wonderful all the film people are very liberal you know and there were all types all races or there was no you know everything went and uh, you know it was just i just thought well i've landed myself into a wonderful situation here it's a boy's dream you know and had, had you finished school because obviously you were 14 years old had you had you left school or had you were you still at school while you were doing that? Uh, yeah, I left school in 1945, actually, and uh, this was like my first job. First and only job in the film industry, really. And uh, I, I went, progressed from um, messenger boy to office boy, and then I worked in the carpenter shop as a, a office boy to Percy Rawlinson, who was a wonderful 
master carpenter and uh, that's more or less where I started to hone my skills in woodwork which became a hobby of mine and I was able to go out into the into the shop where there were like 30 or 40 benches with workmen crafting stuff for the sets and they allowed me to use their tools and uh, it was just one, wonderful and I did that for about six months and then a vacancy occurred in the editing department uh, for a numbering boy, um, someone that empty, you know, empties the bins of waste film. Of course, it was nitrate film in those days, highly inflammable. And my job was to wind up the waste film, which was then sent to a factory where they used to reclaim the silver from the emulsion. Uh, I did that, and then uh, I used to also number the, the film so that the sound, the picture and the sound are separate. Uh, for editing purposes, and uh, you, but you number them so that they're in synchronization with one another, so the editors can put the numbers together and the, the sound will fit the picture. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really where I really started to handle film. So you, you got into editing and then you were first AD on a lot of films. But So you worked with people like Carol Reed and Richard Donner. Was it seeing them directing that made you want to um, become a director? No, not really. I mean, I was always very ambitious uh, and had a great imagination. And uh, I always thought I would finish up as a director, even when I was a kid and knew nothing. You know, ignorance is bliss, doesn't it? Um, but uh, no, I was uh, never a first AD, actually. I was a, I became a, um, a second unit director eventually. But um, no, my editing career started with really... Um, Carol Reed on the Third Man, and Anton Karos, who was the, did the music, um, the zither music yeah. for the film. He was a street musician from Vienna, and Guy Hamilton actually discovered him and uh, told Carol Reed about it. And uh, you remember Guy Hamilton directed Four Bonds, I think. And uh, anyway, um, uh, Anton Karos was brought over to England to record the music. But the unions were very strong in those days, and he wasn't allowed in the studio because he wasn't a member of the musicians' union. So um, Carol Reed um, said, "Come up to my flat in Chelsea and uh, run the film for him, and he'd do all his work in my flat, all his composing." You see, it's all street musicians. It was traditional stuff mainly, but uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, but anyway, he didn't speak any English, and I certainly didn't speak any German. And uh, so I arrived at Carol Reed's Georgian house in King Street, Chelsea, and um, immediately set my machine up to run the film for Anton Karras. And as soon as I pressed the pedal to start the film rolling, all the lights in the house fused. <laughs> <laughs> so the butler was called, and we crawled around in the, in the pantry to find the fuse box. And uh, we tried several times to put new fuses in, and each time it blew. So I, eventually I suggested we put a nail in the fuse box. <laughs> and years later, after I'd become a director, I was walking past um, his house um, in King's Road, and uh, I turned to my wife and I said, I wonder if that nail's still in the fuse box. <laughs> <laughs> so your first Bond film as director was For Your Eyes Only in, in 81. Uh, that's quite a big gig for someone who'd never directed a feature film before was it a case of you asking to direct or were you approached by the producers to ask if you wanted to direct well it was a complete uh, 
surprise to me. You may be surprised to find out, but um, Cubby had been uh, in America for about two or three years from when he sort of split with Harry Saltzman. And now he had a new partner in MGM. And uh, he came back after about two or three years from the last film. And I got a call one day, would I come and have lunch at Pinewood Studios? So they always kept Cubby's table. He had a round table in the restaurant there. And it was always kept for Cubby. And although he hadn't been there for a long time, it was always sort of reserved. And uh, I, w I went there and uh, who was at the table? Peter Lamont, who'd been the production designer, uh, art director on The Love of the Bonds. And uh, Derek Meddings, who was um, a very clever special effects man and um, visual effects. And um, Michael Wilson, the associate producer, uh, Cubby was there and his wife, Dana. And um, we all sat around the table and we all had a very nice meal and had a good laugh and a joke. And Cubby asked us what we'd been doing and so forth. Then Derek Medins turned around and said, who's going to direct the Bond? the new new Bond. And Cubby was kind of evasive, you know, he said, oh, it might be Guy Hamilton, or it might be Lewis Gilbert, or it might be this. And it went on like this, and uh, Derek very jokingly said, well, what about me, you know? <laughs> and uh, Cubby just laughed, and it was a bit embarrassing, <laughs> laughter went round the table. Anyway, about two weeks later, I got another phone call to go for lunch with Cubby. And this time, I was the only technician, if you like, there. And uh, he, we had a very pleasant lunch and a bit of small talk. And then at the end of the lunch, he said, um, would you like to come back to the office? And by this time, I was getting a kind of a feeling that something was up, you know. <laughs> and uh, I went and washed my hands and I went into, the, into his office and they were all sitting around, the ta around their tables. Um, Cubby and Michael and Dana and he said um, how would you like to direct the next Bond my knees almost gave way <laughs> underneath my you can imagine it, it was a, and Cubby said oh if you want time to think about it I said no no I don't need any time to think about it I'm fine but it, it was a, a shock yeah um, but, but he obviously had great confidence in me because I'd um, edited um, three films for him and I'd done second unit directing which is directing the action sequences yeah. and most importantly I directed the, the, the ski parachute yeah. uh, sequence in Spy Who Love Me and uh, that was the very first material we shot on Cubby's return as a sole, sole producer uh, on the series and uh, that was the first bit of film that we turned over on that very important film Spy Love yeah. and uh, it was a great success of course and yeah. uh, and, uh, and then they sent me out to San Moritz to shoot the rest of the students so I did one shot in the on um, Mount Asgard in northwest Canada um, in Eskimo land if you like <laughs> um, and I was three weeks getting that one shot and it cost an awful lot of money in those days two hundred and fifty thousand wow. dollars uh, just to get one shot yeah. And um, I very nearly didn't get anything, quite honestly, but I was, we stuck it out and uh, fortunately there weren't any telephones there, so I wasn't getting <laughs> any flag from the studio, but uh, I managed to come home with the goods and uh, I went, they sent me out to Sam Ritz to shoot the rest of the scene. 
and um, I used a, a cameraman that I used on uh, a Majesty's Secret Service do the snow scene. It's a wonderful cameraman called Willie Bogner. Uh, he was the one that had skis pointed at both ends, yeah. and he could ski backwards and forwards and hold the camera between his legs and get wonderful travelling shots. Um, and I loved all that stuff you know, because it put the audience in the driving yeah. seat. So that sequence was a huge success, and of course Roger Moore just loved it. And um, Roger was a great fan of mine, I think, from that point on, uh, as well as Cubby. Yeah. So you'd done action scenes as a second unit director. What was the difference when you went on to direct the full film? Does that mean you had to give up a certain amount? Did, did you miss some of the work you did as a second unit director when you actually were the main director of the film? Well, all the fun goes to the second unit director. You can imagine it. You're with a small team of expert skiers, world champions in every kind of sport you can imagine, parachutists, you name it. And uh, you're working with a small team and you haven't got the time restraints that you have with the big unit and the main stars, you know, because it costs so much per day yeah. uh, in wages. But with the, the you know, with the second unit, you're dealing with maybe a, a crew of about 15, 16. And you go to these exotic locations, and and it doesn't matter if you spend a couple of weeks there. You get you come back with the goods, you know, yeah. and, and you'll do it a second time if necessary. Mm. So I, I missed all that. It was that was, I had such a wonderful fun because I used to edit the stuff as well. You see, so I would edit the film and do the action scenes. Yeah. So it was, for me, it was absolutely perfect. Yeah. Uh, so all that ended, of course, because then I had to delegate all that work to other people, yeah. um, and I. I had a good, very good friend who was a documentary cameraman called Arthur Worcester. And uh, Arthur was absolutely brilliant. He was a one-man band. He could, you know, he was very self-sufficient. And uh, unlike a lot of studio cameramen, they, you know, they didn't need a lot of stuff. You know, he, he'd sleep rough with his camera and he'd dangle from mountains and he'd do anything. He was underwater cameraman. He was very versatile. And uh, I said, Cubby... Uh, said to me, who's going to be your second unit director? So I said, oh, Arthur Worcester. And he looked at me and he'd never heard of Arthur, you see. And Arthur had ne not really done any feature films at all. So he said, well, I've got a few people in mind. And he quoted a few of his old friends and what have you, and people who worked on previous Bonds. And uh, I kind of took me about three weeks to convince him. But eventually he agreed uh, to meet Arthur. And uh, Arthur came into the studio, and he was—he he wasn't familiar with Pinewood at all. He was trying to find his way around the maze of offices there. And Barbara came running into the office, and she said, "Oh, I've got there's this little fellow out there with thick glasses, and he's sort of stumbling around trying to find your office." <laughs> and with that, Arthur came into the office, tripped over the carpet, and came in, and. You, Arthur also had a stutter, and of course, being very nervous, it was he had a double stutter when he came in the office. And Cubby looked at me as though I was mad, you know. Uh, I had a great deal of uh, difficulty in convincing him he was our man. And of course, he got to love Arthur. He, Arthur was such a character, and he, but he was he was so versatile, and he did such wonderful work for me. And you directed all the Bond films that were made in in the 80s and obviously the 80s was the era with the decade of the big action film bruce willis arnold Schwarzenegger yes. were all making the big films so was there pressure on you with the bond films to make the stunts bigger and better with every film of course cubby always used to look at the uh, because we were writing 
uh, we, we were using the Ian Fleming characters and we were using uh, his short stories, but we hadn't got any full-blown books left. Mm. So, um, I mean, For Your Eyes Only, for instance, you know, was based on a short story, one of his best short stories, a fantastic short story. And we used that in the film, uh, you know, at the opening, uh, where Carol Bouquet with the with crossbow yeah. kills the villain. Um, and so, you know, he... Um, uh, it was kind of difficult, but the fact that we started with a blank sheet of paper and I was involved in in the writing all the time, uh, you know, it's thrown at me. And they would leave leave a gap, and they'd say, that's an action scene. <laughs> and I, I would then write the action yeah. scenes, and uh, uh, I, I enjoyed that. But it, it's, Cubby was a very clever man, and he, he, he liked to be imitated, but he never liked to imitate anyone else. Yeah. So, you know, we were always trying to be original with our action, and... Uh, I think I was fairly original, but of course we do get ideas when we go and look at the Saturday morning pictures as kids, you know, you yeah. soak in all this stuff from the Keystone Cops and all that, and that was very much in the back of my mind. And the humour, of course, is a very important part of yeah. the James Bond films, and um, I was always looking for humour. Yeah. And what you do, you excite people, and then you come in either with a line or with a a bit of action that makes people laugh and it's a release of tension yeah. and it's a surefire formula you know for success I think. Uh, and back then obviously there was no cgi so the majority of these big action scenes were, were were done in camera and with you know on location are you glad that cgi wasn't available and that you could do them like that yeah i i, I think i was very fortunate it was i think the golden age if you like before CGI was just coming in towards the end of my career and you know I did a few commercials using it and it did take a lot of the fun out of it because uh, we'd have a, probably a meeting, I'd written the storyboard out and we'd go through an action sequence shot by shot and being an ex-film editor I was able to, to actually draw up the sequence as cuts. Uh, sometimes the producer, uh, associate producer Tom Pepner, would say to me, "But you can't shoot that. It's, it's got 360 cuts in it. The <laughs> sequence. It'll take us forever to shoot in that." And I'd say, "No, no, they're not all setups. They're all they're cuts. You might use the same setup for five or six cuts." And I had to explain this to them. They all thought, "Oh, the ridiculous! You know, all these shots. You know, because you only do about ten or eleven shots a day. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine." Um, but um, uh, you know, I used to draw up these sequences and then we'd sit around a table with all these experts, you know, special effects guys and and uh, the editor was there and whoever, and uh, mainly Peter Lamont, and we'd discuss each how we would achieve each shot. And we weren't talking about a minute, we were talking about two or three seconds. Mm. So it's very, very specialised, you know. And um, you've got a much better chance of achieving a shot if you short duration than yeah. you have if you're trying to do it all in one yeah. and I think a lot of directors make that mistake of trying to do something all in one you know it goes on for a minute and a half or two minutes and it's very difficult to achieve perfection that way yeah. so uh, breaking it down into small easy to shoot items and they weren't all easy to shoot of course but <laughs> we used to find a way uh, and so in 87 timothy dalton took over from roger moore now that was a dramatic shift in the style of acting and the style of film was that a deliberate choice 
And did you have any say in the casting? Yeah, I had a big say in the casting because um, uh, Timothy Dalton, I'd long admired him as an actor, and uh, he he had been approached many years before actually um, because he was um, he'd he'd done a, a couple of very good films and Cubby was interested in him and he came in for an interview and that and he he wasn't that keen to do a Bond film at that time but now things have moved on. And I don't think possibly his film career had progressed as well as his acting in the theatre. He was more theatre yeah. actor at that time. And when we when uh, Roger moved to one side, <coughs> uh, we we had a choice. We tested Pierce Brosnan for the role, and at the last minute, Pierce Brosnan had to drop out because Mary Tyler Moore had an option on him. So for the time, so it wasn't true. So I'd always heard the rumour that he couldn't do it because of Remington Steel, because he was still in Remington Steel. Was that, was that not the case? It was the case. Uh, the, the Mary Tyler Moore had the option for Remington Steel. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, because of that, Cubby w wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hire him at that time. Uh, so he was more or less put on hold, which was a good thing, because I think, you know, after he put on about eight years, um, you know, I think he was a better person for the role. Um, he was probably too young when I first tested him for the role. But um, anyway, uh, Timothy Dalton's name came up again because suddenly we're in a hole. We've got to start shooting in a couple of months and we haven't got a James Bond. So um, we were getting in a bit, a bit of a desperate situation. And uh, I suggested Timothy and we had a meeting uh, at Michael Wilson's house in Hampstead. And, and Tim was more amiable to the idea, but he said then he wanted to make it go back to the Fleming style, the original style. He wanted less, you know, I suppose less jokey and more serious stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask that because License to Kill, looking back at it now, it wasn't the most successful because it, and it was a lot darker and a lot of the humour had gone. But in retrospect, it, it now seems ahead of its time because when Bond came back with Daniel Craig, they did lose a lot of the humour and, and it, the new Bonds seem more like License to Kill than some of the other Bonds. Yeah, I think that's true. I think License to Kill was ahead of its time, really. And of course, we had the advantage that Roger was very well exposed in the United States of America. Uh, with uh, his saint, all his saint stuff, and the other set TV series he did. So, um, but Timothy, they weren't really as familiar with the younger audience. Uh, so he didn't didn't kind of work as well in America as perhaps the rest of the world. Mm. And uh, the American market is huge, of course. It's yeah. it's like I think we used to make sixty percent of our money outside of America with bonds and 40% in America I'll give you an idea of the yeah. size of that market mm -hmm. uh, so um, anyway Timothy got the job and uh, I thought he did a fantastic job I think he was unfairly panned for it a little bit at the time but I think looking back now in retrospect it, it was ahead of its time both of, it, both of his bond films that's right and of course Robert Darby played the villain in that and he's a very good actor and he was he was a sort of your typical type of mafia um, uh, baddie, you know. He's a, quite a handsome man in a lot of ways, and but very menacing. And uh, as we were dealing with the drug trade, now today people see it happening for real, how vicious and how you know terribly cruel they are, the drug barons. And yeah. uh, so we were ahead of our time, and uh, it was. I think it was the best film I ever made. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, you'd done a sixth 
and Timothy Dalton had stayed to do a third, do you think it would have carried on down that path of staying darker? Uh, it's, it's strange, really. It's difficult, impossible to say, really. But uh, <clears throat> I think the humour is so important in the Bond films. And uh, with Roger, it was so easy to put the humour in because he was a much lighter kind yeah. of Bond. And uh, Roger was always very aware of his influence on children, for instance, young, the younger audience. Well, License to Kill, of course, the censor didn't like what we did. And uh, he gave it a 15-plus certificate. Um, so we lost a lot of the younger yeah. kids, you know. I mean, I remember on uh, Octopussy, which was a, also a very good film, I thought, was wonderful for the circus and all the animals and stuff. I loved all that stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, Roger um, was in a, involved in a fight scene where the octopus comes out of the tank and clamps on the face of one of the baddies during this fight sequence. And uh, I was at the golf club one day, and uh, one of the members there came out to me. He said, I was cursing you the other day. He said, I took my son to see Octopussy. He said, and when the, the octopus came out the tank and clamped on this man's face, my kid hid under the seat. <laughs> and afterwards, he said, would you take me back to see the film again, Dad, because I missed it last time. <laughs> he said I had to go three times before he actually had the nerve to look at it through his fingers. Uh, so all the big action scenes that you did in the five films, was, was there any th action film that you wrote or you wanted to do that was just physically impossible to do? Oh, there were quite a number that, um, you know, you'd sketch out ideas and what have you. Uh, nothing was impossible in our book, you know. It was all, there was always we we had the technicians, we had the yeah. uh, the old fashioned um, methods, if you like. And one of the things that Peter Lamont, our production designer, absolutely brilliant guy, and knew all the history of, of filmmaking and uh, all the old techniques. And um, one of the things we used very well was a foreground miniature. Now we had a scene like in. Um, uh, for your eyes only, where a helicopter flies inside a building. Mm -hmm. Impossible, really, to do it. You know, with, I mean, people do do it, but it's highly dangerous, and you certainly couldn't have any other people in there. But what we used to do is we'd have a foreground, we'd have a miniature wall which matched exactly the, the warehouse in the background that the helicopter was going to enter. And it was a second unit job. You couldn't do it with the first unit because it might take you three days to, to, to achieve it, you see. But you'd, you'd have the helicopter fly between the foreground miniature and the building, and it appears to go in the building. <laughs> and uh, it's very simple. The, the, the art is the photography because yeah. it, the foreground has to match exactly into the background. You can do it yourself with your fingers sometimes. You can sort of say, well, that is that, you know, and it... it if you pass something between it. And yeah. that foreground miniature technique I used on many films, most notably in uh, Octopussy pre-title. Um, there was a scene there where the BD jet... Do you remember the BD yeah. jet? Yeah. The BD jet flies into a hangar. And the BD jet pilot, Corky Fornoff, he came over from L.A. and... Uh, uh, he showed us a commercial he'd done for Japanese television where a, his plane, his little beady jet, flies through a hangar. And I said to him, I said, well, I'm sure that's very skillful to do that. 
but it's the most boring shot I've ever seen because it, <laughs> I said, can you do it with people in the hangar? Oh, absolutely not. No way. <laughs> so anyway, I got thinking about it and I uh, spoke to Peter and uh, we decided we'd try something. And what we did was we, we'd used a foreground miniature and we had all these soldiers closing the hangar door on the left of frame. And on the right of frame, we had a, a quite a large foreground miniature, if you like, but there was a gap and we had we put a soldier with a gun in the foreground to give it a bit of life and we matched again second unit operation because it took so long to perfect and then we ran, ran a, a third size uh, beady jet we had three models um, made and uh, we ran them down wires and uh, as the helicopter as not the helicopter as the um, beady jet gets close to the hangar door uh, one wing drops to the ground mm -hmm. and it appears to go through an ever-closing door. Yeah. Uh, and it's done purely with that foreground miniature. Uh, Johnny Richardson, uh, who was uh, the special effects man on that, visual effects man on that film, uh, I asked him how he how he uh, achieved that. And he said, well, we, we ran the, the model down two wires through their wingtips. And he said, quite simply, we just loosened the wire on one of the things and the thing went down <laughs> became vertical instead of horizontal because even now in days of cgi that shot of the the plane tipping on its side and going through i mean i assumed it was real it you you yeah, wouldn't you I, wouldn't know that that was know. um trickery it was absolutely well also uh, see we had to achieve the result we had to get a, a, an old jag we bought an old jag xj6 and cut the top off of it and made it a flatbed and Johnny, clever engineer, he, he made a pole arm uh, with hydraulic controls and he laid on this flatbed while someone drove at 70 miles an hour through the hangar. And we had Roger Moore sitting on top in, a, in the beady jet, full size, driving through the hangar while in the foreground, we had all these soldiers running around, and, you know, masses of people all over. And that's what gives you the, the tension, you see, the people. And you get the scale and everything when you've got people in it. Yeah. And uh, that was very successful. And uh, except uh, quite recently, Johnny told me that when we did the exit, the exit was even funnier because uh, it was similar. We used a similar technique, and we did it for even closer for the plane coming out of the thing. And uh, he said the problem was, he said it was a bit of a lash up this this XJ6 that we adopted for this thing and he said one of the one of the, one of the takes he said the linkage to the accelerator broke and the thing went flat out and he said everyone all the local RAF guys at North Hall, were all laughing their heads off he said because this this XJ6 came tearing out this hangar with Roger Moore and the beady jet on top doing wheelies all over the grass because the linkage had broken and he couldn't touch the brakes because he would have lost the steering and they're all air aircraft parked everywhere and it would have been a disaster so he had to keep going and steering it of all the action scenes you did in the five films or as a second unit director which was your favorite what you, which did you find the most satisfying to do well i think without a doubt the spy love me the, the ski parachute sequence because that was so unique and it was a combination of so many skills. Alan Hume was my photographer. It was an old friend of mine. Again, I had to fight Cubby to get him on the film to start with because all, all Alan had done really of any note um, was the carry-on films. He did many of the carry-on films. 
but yet Alan had such a fantastic sense of humor, as well as being a really brilliant cameraman. Uh, but he hadn't achieved the big films that uh, Cubby expected me to choose one of the top top guys, you know. And uh, I opted for Alan, and I fought very hard to get him, and I'm glad I did. And whose idea was the Union Jack parachute? Ah, now, <laughs> we discussed this, Lewis, Lewis Gilbert and I and the writer discussed this, and it really started with the idea that we'd start with the Union Jack and end with the, end with the hammer and sickle. Well, the hammer and sickle was elbowed in the in the process of writing because it changes all the time. So in the end, it was like a combination of things. But it started off with this idea of starting off with, uh, you know, because it was about uh, becoming, um, you know, the Russians and the and the the British becoming sort of soulmates for a yeah. short while, if you like. Which, don't forget, it was the, during the Cold War. Uh, so, you know, the whole theme of the film was that it was yeah. uh, the, the coming together yeah. of the two big powers at that time. There was never any pressure from the Americans to have uh, stars and stripes on the uh, parachute. Would, I don't somehow think it would have worked as well. No, I know it wouldn't have worked, but I can imagine American producers no, wanting no, it. No, we, we never got, we, we didn't get, we used to get... Um, interference from America quite a bit uh, mainly about the budget and uh, you know they kept MGM kept changing their heads at that time when they were going through a sort of a crisis uh, they did a, f a film called um, in, set in Vietnam which was an absolute uh, disaster with, with Marlon Brando what was it called uh, anyway uh, it, was, it was a major flop if you like financially and it practically skinned the company uh, they were practically broke, so um, they were go going from one crisis to another. And of course, you know the Bond films—they they sent their hatchet man over and saying, "You've got to cut down the cost of these movies," you know, which is ridiculous because yeah. we were very economical with yeah. our money. I think my budgets were—I think the first film was twenty-seven million, and uh, ten years later, my last film I did was thirty-one million. So. Wow dollars yeah. so so we did very well really we were very efficient yeah. i'd say and obviously they're famous for for globe trotting going all around the world and obviously that became famous because back in the day when the first bomb films people weren't traveling as much and they weren't going places on holiday is there anywhere that you wanted to shoot that you just couldn't go get to for any reason not really i mean india was always a place that interested me and uh, it was very difficult to film in india at that time because they had restrictions on currency so, you know, you couldn't, if all the films, the American films that were run in India, their funds that they generated in India were frozen. So there was this huge amount of frozen rupees sitting there and with all these American distribution companies. They had all this money lying in India, which they couldn't export back to their country, you see. Um, and I, we thought about this and... We approached the Indian government. We said we'd love to come and make a Bond film in your country, but you know, we have budgetary uh, controls as such, and that it's going to be very difficult uh, unless we can buy some of your frozen rupees. <laughs> so we went around Hollywood, or I didn't personally, but the producer went around Hollywood buying up all, mopping up all <laughs> these frozen rupees. So we more or less got a half price in India. Uh, which was great for the yeah. budget, you know, and so it enabled us to go to India, and it was, I think, the most 
most fantastic country yeah. and the people are so wonderful and was it was it because it was a bond film that most places were an open door if you said you were working on a bond film that country wanted to get themselves in one of those films absolutely i mean <laughs> really when you think about it um we went to china and with the purpose of filming in china we we're going to do scenes on the great wall of china and and the, the warriors at uh, xi'an and what have you anyway uh, we went there and the, and the, the Chinese authorities, the communist authorities, uh, welcomed us to start with until they said we would have to um, okay your script. They wanted to censor our script, you know, to make it very pro-Chinese, I suppose. And Cubby couldn't do that. So that that's somewhere we, we didn't go, uh, which we intended to, but we didn't go in the end. But uh, funnily enough, everywhere we went in China, there were posters everywhere and they were selling you know counterfeit films <laughs> that, which are the plague of our life yeah. really and uh, they don't of course recognize copyright or they didn't then i beginning to come around i think trump's after them i think to get to recognize <laughs> copyright but um we weren't getting any income from our films in china although they were shown everywhere everyone knew about james yeah. bond and we went to a in shanghai we went to the studio there and they made an actual film, a Chinese version of a, just a little <laughs> short film um, of showing a, you know, a, a Chinese Bond and that. It was done as a tribute to the yeah. Bond film. They, they actually made it in the studio for us on our visit. <laughs> and I, uh, I was sitting there with Barbara Broccoli while, while they were running the film and Cubby. And after the film finished, we all laughed and clapped, etc. And uh, I said, Oh, it reminds me of a, a film we make. And Barbara tried to hide herself under the seat because <laughs> they didn't understand what I was talking about, fortunately. But uh, we used to make little films, uh, you know, while we were in production, yeah. any little sort of off takes that, were, you know, something went wrong and Roger Moore blinking every time a gun went off and things like that. We'd, you know, in Christmas time, we'd show this little film and just for the unit to have yeah. a good laugh, you know. And, and you worked as second unit on uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is probably now regarded as one of the best Bond films, with one exception, which was the star George Lazenby. <laughs> While you were making it, did everybody think he was the right man for the job, or did, was everybody thinking he's not quite got it? Well, I think he was an extremely handsome man, George. And he, even today, he's, he's a great personality, and uh, uh, and he's found himself. He's got a wonderful sense of humour, and uh, he's he made a f very good film actually recently. I, I didn't get much of a release, but uh, it was I think it was called Ma uh, the Making of James Bond or something, or uh, How I Became James Bond or something. I don't know, but it was very amusing. But he is an amusing character, and he's around and people still love him you know do you think if if he'd have been allowed to do another one he would have got into the role more oh without a doubt yes i mean the thing is he was a bit undisciplined he was a a famous model he used to do the big fry adverts and that's how he got the job really very handsome australian guy and uh you know and he he sort of he was quite clever he used to he he says that he, how he got the job was he he used to go to the same barber in uh, in London as uh, Cubby Broccoli, 
and he kept going there every time he heard he had a mate there every time he heard Cubby was going in every day he would appear in the he'd be in the seat getting out just as Cubby arrived you know uh, that's the story he tells whether it's true or not I don't know but uh, you know he 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 was tested and of course Peter Hunt was directing for the first time and Peter had been the editor on all the Bond films and was a fantastic editor and he and Terence Young really created the style, the Bond style, sort of abbreviated strip cartoon type of film, and uh, with the humour. And, uh, you know, Peter, uh, when George was cast, had high hopes for him. And Diana Rigg, of course, a fantastic, fantastic actress, and she was in her prime then, and she was wonderful in the film. And she, everyone was trying to help George. George was his own worst enemy in a lot of ways, you know. Had he acted before, or was this his f first acting job? No, his only acting was in commercials, as far as I know. And uh, But uh, Diana was very good, and she tried to help him, and everyone tried to help him. And that. But he he was a bit arrogant. You have to be arrogant to be James Bond, I suppose. But um, he didn't endear himself to, to Diana. You know, there was that famous incident where they were doing the love scene, and... Uh, he was accused, I think he or she was accused of eating garlic um, prior to the love scene, <laughs> which wouldn't go down very well. Um, but he wasn't bad in the film, you know, and uh, because Peter was a very skilled editor as well. And although I edited the film, Peter was a very editor. He was on my elbow while we were doing it. And, uh, and the second unit was a great opportunity for yeah. me to do all the ski sequences and, and the... Um, the stuff with the on the mountainside, you know, which is, you know, I only went on to do the bobsleigh run, but I finished up doing a lot more, <laughs> and then Peter asked me to edit the stuff, and that's how we. So your, your last film was um, Living Daylights. Was it your choice not to do another one? No, not at all. Would you Would you have carried on doing them? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> I just loved it. I just loved the bomb films. It was better than going to work, quite honestly. <laughs> So, so you you were told you weren't you were, you just weren't making the next one. Well, there'd been a gap of about uh, three years, I think, and they had very a great deal of legal problems with the, the the copyright of certain aspects of the bonds, and it, that was taking a lot of time. And I think both Timothy and I were both a bit out of past our cell by dates by the time they got going again, and I think. The new regime at MGM decided to have a clean, sh uh, clean slate yeah. and uh, have a new writer, a new actor, a new director. Mm -hmm. well, I don't think that was a bad thing. When uh, Cubby rang me and he said, he said uh, he told me that that's what they wanted to do. I said, oh, I think it's quite a good idea, Cubby, have a bit of fresh blood, you know, give it a new look. Mm. And he said, Well, I'm not too sure about that. I said, Well, you know, good luck, and we'll always be friends. And you know, because I was only hired for every film. I, I wasn't under contract yeah. for the whole series. After each film, you know, they could have chosen someone else. Yeah. I was freelance. So every time they asked me, it was a compliment, really. Um, got some questions for some listeners. They've been messaging on Facebook. Uh, Paul McCarthy wants to know if you've got any memories of Orson Welles on the set of The Third Man. Well, Orson, he, he was a bit of an elusive character. Um, I was not on the set in Austria um, where you know they shot in the Prater Park and all that stuff because he was a mystery character he didn't appear very often in the film when you analyze it 
Um, but at Shepparton, um, uh, where we're doing the interior scenes in Shepparton, I was th often thrown off the set by Guy Hamilton, funny enough, who was the who was the assistant director to Carol Reed. <laughs> but I was very young and used to wander on and they'd get a, get him out, get that kid out of it, you know. So I didn't really ever meet him on that. But I, I did meet him later on in my career when he was doing a Hamlet film, which he, he ran out of money on and it went on over about five or six years. I don't know whether he ever finished it. I think he probably did. But I was working in Hammersmith at the old town hall. I had a cutting room there. And uh, the chap I was working with uh, was doing some editing work in the lunch hours, shall we say, for Orson Welles. And Orson would come in with his overcoat over his shoulders, you know, very aloof man. He would come into the cutting room. So you didn't really get to speak to him. He was just above us. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Paul also wants to know, so in 1992, you directed Christopher Columbus. Were you aware while you were making it that another Columbus film was in production at the same time? There were, yeah, there were two other yeah. Columbus films. You know, it was the, the anniversary, the 400-year anniversary. Uh, so, you know, Carry Ons did one, uh, which uh, Alan Hume, I think, photographed. And uh, uh, there was another one being made by Ridley Scott. Uh, so, you know, it was the competition was great. And then, of course, unfortunately, towards as these films were about to be released, um, then it all came about the slavery in America and suddenly became Christopher Columbus became a bad name in America on the 400th anniversary. Uh, we were supposed to have had the fleet, the Columbus fleet, sail into New York Harbor and have big celebrations and fireworks and God knows what. And it was all cancelled. Mm. So, you know, it was bad publicity. Yeah. But uh, it was a good film, and, and I enjoyed yeah. making it. And was Timothy Dalton in line to, to, to be the lead in that film as well? Absolutely. Uh, I think that's probably why I got offered the job originally, because, um, you know, they thought, I suppose, the, the Hawkins thought, well, John directed Timothy Dalton, and uh, we get him, and they, they actually hired him, and they he, uh, he went to Cannes, and they spent a fortune about five million dollars or something promoting the, the idea of timothy in this in christopher columbus and uh then i got a phone call one day and uh sulkin Ilya sulkin said well he said when timothy heard that you were directing it he, he said he didn't want to do it but i don't think that was the <laughs> i don't i think that was his version of it but uh timothy you know i'm good friends with timothy i, yeah. I think he, he didn't want i think he said to probably Ilya. I don't want to make a Bond film of Christopher Columbus. I want, you know, a different, yeah. different, complete thing. I mean, uh, people put you in slots, don't they? They yeah. say, oh, he's an action director, or he's this, or he's that, which is a load of rubbish, really. Yeah. I mean, working with actors is a lot easier than doing action, I can <laughs> tell you. <laughs> and Brando was in Christopher Columbus. Yes. Yeah. Was he as um, difficult to work with as um, rumour has it? Well, uh, his... his reputation had preceded him and quite honestly when he was when he was cast at a quite a late period in the making of the film uh, it, it cost an awful lot we only had him for 10 days or something uh, and uh, it was costing in those days I don't know five million or 20 million dollars I've forgotten now what the exact figure but it was an awful lot of money and uh, quite honestly I was a bit terrified I was very nervous yeah. about it and uh, I thought about it for a while, and I thought, I've got what I've got to do. I hear he doesn't turn up, and we had a tight schedule because we didn't have all the money in the world on that film. And uh, so I thought I'll cast. I had a very good friend, an actor, 
and I cast him as, as uh, Brando's assistant. And my th thinking was if Brando didn't turn up, I'd shove this guy in in his place, <laughs> you see, to do his lines. There's a bit of psychology involved here, you know, with actors. They don't like to lose their lines, yeah. so it's a good incentive to turn up, quite honestly. They don't mind keeping you waiting, but no, no. they don't want somebody else doing the role instead. That's right. They don't want to lose their lines. So um, it's, it's helped me on a, a number of occasions. But um, So that's what I did, and uh, sure enough, the first day of shooting, he didn't turn up. So in goes my friend, this actor, does all his lines, and I isolated him in the set. So I did all the other actors, you know, completed the scene and that, and uh, word must have got back to Brando because he turned up next morning good as gold. So I reshot that particular corner of the set, and then I got on and did the rest. And I found him very charming, and I think he appreciated my sense of humour because yeah. I was a bit tongue-in-cheek, you know. <laughs> and uh, I got on very well with him. I was, I was, I was kind of very nervous about him and uh, he had all kinds of ideas he wanted to you know he wanted long, long fingernails and I thought I thought to myself oh dear that means that we're going to be in makeup for five hours every day you know get sorting all this out so I managed to to talk him out of that and um, eventually you know he was very good he was very cooperative and uh, I developed a, a kind of a nervous cough working with him which isn't surprising and uh, he came up and he said, he said, I have the same thing in Madrid, working in Madrid. The air's very dry and what have you. Anyway, next, that evening, I got back to my hotel room and there's a, a, a humidifier in my room, which I plugged in and immediately blew it up. <laughs> so I sent him a note, thanked him very much. Don't tell him I'd blown the humidifier <laughs> up, but uh, he was very thoughtful and very yeah. kind man. Uh, Sophie Grundy wants to know which was the fa your favourite Bond film of the five that you made and what was your favourite thing about being a director? What did you enjoy most about directing? Well, I'll answer the, the last part first, I suppose. Uh, I mean, director, being a director is the nearest thing you've got to being God, quite honestly. I mean, it really, <laughs> um, you know, you are in absolute control of of this wonderful crew, you know, 150 people, and like it's, it's like running a, a an organisation, and you you actually whatever you want, you get. You know what I mean? It's like you have the most wonderful help on a Bond film. You have the best people, and they all contribute. But the great thing is, there's such a relaxed atmosphere on the set, and uh, I remember working with. Um, um, on which film was that? Octopussy, which was one of my favourite films. I must say, I loved, loved Octopussy because of the animals and stuff. And Louis Jourdain played the villain, and he was absolutely fantastic in the role. Um, Louis' career—he'd been a big, big star in Hollywood, and doing those musicals like Gigi and what have you. And uh, so he was used to that sort of adulation that you get on the American sets, you know, where everyone's sorry. You know, fall over backwards and to you, and uh, whereas our set was completely opposite. Um, our set was just a laugh a minute, you know. And working with Roger, Roger was always playing pranks, and you know, no one, you know, we didn't take it. We we, we worked very hard, and we had the most talented people, but we also were very light-hearted, and, and everything was fun, you know. And uh, Louis couldn't get used to that. He couldn't get used to the British set, you know, being so 
in full mourning. Yeah. It was the absolute opposite of the American scene. <laughs> and he got he got very nervous, and uh, he went to Cubby, and he th he said that he thought he wasn't being he wasn't being well directed. You see, so Cubby uh, looked and called me over to the office, the lunch hour. Louis was there, and uh, Cubby said. Before this film, Louis, he said, you were doing the swamp thing on television. And he said, after this film, you'll be lucky if you'll be doing the swamp thing as well. So get on with it. And, uh, and he's at, he absolutely supported me 100% cover. He was wonderful that way. And he was, you know, it, it wasn't that he wasn't being directed. I mean, you know, it's, it's, he's the actor. I'm not going to tell him how to act. I mean, we work out the character and what have you. He was absolutely perfect. He's one of the best villains we've ever had. So it's the thing is, it's like starting a new job. When anybody starts a new job, there's a time of settling in. But for actors, you're starting a new job every few months, basically, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it is. It, I, I, I suppose they always try, actors try to do something a little different, which is so the opposite of what it used to be. Yeah. Because Roger Moore, for instance, has often been accused of not being a great actor, you know. But he, he, I always look, think about uh, Cary Grant. Uh, Ca Cary Grant was the same in every movie, wasn't he? Yeah. He was he was the charming, fun guy, you know, with a phony English accent he used to put on a Cockney accent. And uh, I met the guy, and he's, he really was charming yeah. as well. And uh, and Roger was the English Cary Grant in my book, you know, just charming. He was such a wonderful guy to work with. He, he had no pretensions about acting. Tall. And quite often, I used to have to reassure him. I used to have to say, you can say this. You can say these lines, Roger. You're a good actor. <laughs> uh, Neil Johnson has some fairly simple questions. Who was your favourite Bond? Roger. Roger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mainly because I think it's an age thing. I think, you know, the early Bond fans love Sean Connery, and he was wonderful in the role. There's no doubt about it. He's that. You know how they. I mean, I think Terence, Terence Young, the director, had a lot of credit for it because Terence was like a Bond character mm -hmm. in himself. He was a very wealthy, well-educated man with a great sense of fun and humour, and a great sense of style. Uh, his tailor. He, the first thing he did was take take Sean to his tailor, get him fixed up with a decent suit, you know. <laughs> and uh, but Sean was wonderful in the role. Yeah. But I think Terence. Young and Peter Hunt, the editor, have a lot of credit to take yeah. for that to establish Sh Sean in the role. Yeah. I mean, he was he'd done everything, hadn't he? He'd been a milkman in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, he, not that there's anything wrong with being a milkman, but you know, there's a big, big jump to James yeah. Bond, isn't there? And then he was, uh, I think his start really was when he went in for bodybuilding and he, he used to go to the conventions for bodybuilding Sean yeah. uh, also your favorite Bond film you don't have to pick one that you worked on but I'm sure you probably were <laughs> no my favorite Bond film is Goldfinger, Goldfinger. yeah because yeah, I, I remember reading the book on holiday and I couldn't put it down and it was full of such original ideas and uh, it was very well directed and very well acted uh, so I, I'd say that was my probably my favorite Bond film the ones that I directed uh, it's either Octopussy or the License to Kill. But yeah. Octopussy I love because of the animals. I just love animals. Yeah. And uh, I learned, I learned uh, working on television where I was always 
doing second unit directing and if there was an animal involved it was always over to the second unit director because the animal would either leave the building (laughs) (laughs) the first time anyone clanged the door shut the cat would be gone you know so uh, i learned very early on to how to how to work with animals talking of animals that's just reminded me you're well known as far as i know unless this is an urban myth about having james bond being startled by pigeons in a lot of the films what, what was that about well first of all pigeons are cheap <laughs> <laughs> and there's lots of them <laughs> so you know you you can uh, you you've always got a, a crate full of them that standing by if, if you lose one you know and uh no it's a, a that's the the main reason and they're available anywhere in the world all right so that's the basic the economics is everything you know in yeah. filmmaking <laughs> and wasn't there not a famous pigeon double take was that in um was it moonraker or octopussy yeah in moonraker in venice uh, i i was an editor on that as well as second unit director and uh yeah i saw a tri- little trick we did in the culinary rooms we reverse printed the the film so that uh, the, the pigeon appears to do a double take when the gondola goes past on dry land yeah uh, also from Neil he said would you have liked after you'd finished the Bond films to, to move on to another franchise like a Star Wars or a Bourne film was that of any interest to you when you finished Bond or were you happy to be away from a franchise no I mean I think I'd done my stint really with the Bonds and uh, quite honestly I'm amazed that they every time they come up with a new idea and a new thing and you need new people you see you need new directors new writers to bring in new ideas Uh, I mean I was mentally exhausted after my uh, eight bonds I did (laughs) altogether but uh, I mean I was involved on the action of those early ones that I I was editor and uh, and that's how I got the job basically I mean that's well obviously Covey was so impressed with my action stuff that uh, he kept me you know he used to keep you you didn't know what Kirby was thinking half the time but he was a very bright man and uh, I think he earmarked me as a future director from Spy Who Loved Me but it took a long while (laughs) and it surprised me when I eventually got the gig (laughs) I'm thinking you wouldn't have been happy on a Star Wars too many special effects well I think George Lucas more or less ran it very closely you know um, and I think probably a, would have been a lot of interference yeah. whereas with with my films I, I had a free hand I didn't have any you know they were very good the producers and and uh, Barbara they're very sensible people you know if you you're their man that they 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 bought you and they bought your ideas yeah. let you get let you get on with it you know don't don't sit on their shoulders because that's bad for anyone you know uh, andrew paul smith uh, would like to know what you think is the best bond song oh well the songs aren't really i think you've got to go back to shirley bassey i think and uh, matt munro as well uh, shirley bassey is a fantastic singer no doubt about it and uh, matt munro russia with love was fantastic you actually directed uh, one of the videos for one of the Bond songs, didn't you? The AHA um, Living Daylights. Did you direct the, the uh, music video for that? You're credited on IMDb. <laughs> no, for your eyes only, uh, Morris Binder uh, wanted to use um, Sheena Easton in the title. She was a very beautiful girl. Still is, I think. 
but um, at that time, you know, she was very photogenic, and um, he wanted to use her in the. In, and, and it's very unusual to get that opportunity because the song usually comes the last thing we do in the in yeah. the making of the movie. So there's not time to do any anything like designing the titles around the yeah. person singing the song. But it was it so happened she came down to the studio and we all met her and Morris met her and uh, he said to me, he said, I'd love to use her in the, in the titles. I said, well, we've got the song that's being written. Uh, have a word with, um, uh, you know, Bill Conti and uh, see what we can do. And Again, did you have a say in who sang the theme songs and the films you directed? Well, I had a say in as much that it was more or less, a, a, you know, it's, it's so complicated to get an artist to sing in a song. They're usually under contract to a, record company and it's very complicated legally so you know it's the producers have to work overtime on trying to get the clearances and the, the things and all the deals struck so you know it's not a question of saying i'd like someone yeah you know uh, but barbara broccoli was very good at that and uh, cubby as well they used to spend a lot of time getting the yeah. sorting out someone who's current you know, top of the hip parades, yeah. if you like, and someone who's going to be there shortly, and also to get through all the legal side of yeah. it and to get the contract. So, you know, I was too busy making the movie, quite honestly, to get involved in all that, and not that I would want to anyway, but they were very good. Yeah. And that's the great thing about the Bonds, you get the best help. Yeah. You know, you don't, it's not, you're not making it on your own, you've got a good team around you, I tell you. Uh, Amy Buckle uh, wants to know what your opinion is of a woman playing Bond in the future. Well, it has been done in the past, not with us, but uh, there was a, um, a film made years ago, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, where they attempted to make a, a film of a, a, a Bond, a woman playing Bond. I suppose the nearest thing they've been to it recently is uh, Judy playing the M. Yeah. Um, and she was a great success mm -hmm. of that, playing that. But as far as the lady playing it, well, who knows? I mean, they're talking about having a, a black Bond, uh, and there's a couple of good, really good black actors out there who could do it quite well. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if that isn't doesn't happen. Are you a fan of the new Bonds, the the ones with Daniel Craig? Uh, I don't think there's enough humour in it. Uh, it's, a, it's a very personal thing. He's been a great success, I know, and uh, I've enjoyed that. I enjoy Casino Royale particularly. But uh, I've got a feeling that I would like to see more humour in it. But, you know, that's personal choice. And, uh, you know, my film, that people will say are too slapstick, probably. They say there's too much humour, if you like. But I, I just can't turn help turning everything into a joke at the end of the day. So there you go. Uh, Clive Ford, a uh, difficult one to answer, probably. How many takes do you do before you're satisfied with an end result, usually? Well, with Roger Moore, usually take one. Or take two sometimes, but not very often. But with his female <laughs> female lead, you do a lot, <laughs> which is hard on Roger because he's, as I say, he, he's such a uh, he's such a professional, and he's so used to television where you only do take one, take yeah. one, you know. And uh, he, I used to say to him, I don't know, how, you must have a photographic memory, Roger. And he said, Well, it's a technique. It's a technique. And uh, but you know obviously sometimes you've picked a leading lady for her looks and you know someone glamorous and they're yeah. not always the greatest actress yeah. let's face it um, there are exceptions but generally they're not and so you spend more time yeah. 
less time on Roger and more time on the person opposite him. Uh, and he's, he's, he understands that. He, I mean, Roger was such a clever man. He was, he was a good director as well. So he understood my problems as yeah. well as his acting problems. But uh, he was a pleasure to work with, a wonderful gentleman. Um, How long have we been going? An hour and three minutes. Oh, well, I mean, well, an hour. Yeah. Okay, well, let's work. Have you got your phone? Those questions from Martin. Oh, yeah. Sorry, someone just texted okay. us a couple of questions oh, okay. as we were on our way in, so I don't want to. Right, okay. <laughs> I mean, we could sit here all day, but... We, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, there we go. What we got? Okay. Okay, uh, so of all the set pieces in the Bond films, of all the ones that you directed, which was the hardest to arrange? And did any go or nearly go wrong? I think Octopussy, the, um, uh, the Russian... Uh, big hall when it, where all the Russian leaders were sitting and we had a revolving a revolving podium and we had all the things on the wall being you know where uh, Burkov went up with his ruler and was saying you know we attack here we the, the the west is decadent and weak he's not far wrong about that is he <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we should invade here and invade there and that, that scene was quite amazing I, I was when I was gobsmacked when I saw the set. Peter Lamont did a fantastic job, and and um, the actors, the reaction to the actors was quite amazing. Um, I always remember we we, we found a, a lookalike for Brezhnev, the chap with the bushy eyebrows, yeah. you know. And this guy was good at actor, and he we we enhanced his eyebrows a bit, and uh, we got him up there. And uh, um, the chap that that used to play the head of the KGB. Uh, Bond sort of equivalent in the Kremlin. Um, trying to think of his name. Um, anyway, he, he was wonderful. And uh, when when uh, Burkov did started doing his stuff, uh, they all started overacting like you wouldn't believe because the set was turning round, all this stuff was going on, and of course for an actor it's like paradise, <laughs> you know. <It's> a, <laughs> and I remember um, Elaine Strake, who was a continuity lady on the film. She came out to me and she whispered in my ear. She said, oh, she said she, they're so over the top. And I said, well, it is a Bond film. <laughs> You've got to be a bit over the top, you know. So I took them down a little bit, but not, not a huge amount. <laughs> uh, Martin, also like to know, of all the Bond films that you didn't direct, is there one that you wish you did? Casino Royale would have been yeah. nice, yeah. But uh, Because that was the one that sort of took it back to the yeah. Dalton days, yeah. didn't it? Um, that was a good good film and uh, Goldfinger I don't think I could have directed it as well as Gold, Guy, Guy Hamilton but I would have loved to work with Sean uh, I just miss Sean unfortunately but uh, uh, I met him socially of course and I, he, we used to be at Pinewood and he'd come by working on another film he'd stop by the table and have a few words with us and he had lunch with us we, Cubby invited him to have lunch with us and he sat down um, my wife who's just left I know she was sitting next to Sean and they shared a dessert and oh it's the highlight of her life I think <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on the 6th of June you're going to be appearing at the Kenton Theatre here, here in Henley um, giving a talk on your films is, is, it, is that something you do a lot of? well I don't do a lot of it but uh, in this case it's for a very good charity and I was approached about it 
and uh, it's the young young people in Henley and uh, who are a bit deprived and uh, young children and young people and it's a very good cause and uh, I I when they said Kenton Theatre, I sort of trembled a bit. I thought, 250 people. I mean, I have appeared <laughs> in abroad on promotional tours where there's been thousands of people, yeah. but uh, something as intimate as the Kenton, and it's a lovely venue, and uh, I've got to go over there and see what, you know, arrange things a yeah. bit, because, uh, you know, it's uh, a new experience for me in a the theatre, yeah. so. And will there be a Q&A so people can ask you their own questions about the Bond film? Yes, that's the idea that um, Jenny Hanley, who's the Bond girl on the Majesty's Secret Service, she's going to compare for me. And uh, I probably won't talk about the Majesty's Secret Service too much unless I get asked questions by the audience, which I'm sure I will do. Um, but uh, I know all my family have been already in reserved 12 seats. And I said, well, don't give them all in one block in the front row in case, you know, uh, it's nice to have some, uh, it's nice to do a bit of wallpaper, but spread them out <laughs> around the audience a bit, will you? Uh, John Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for talking to us. Pleasure, Duncan. Thank you. So there we go. That is our first Monday Movies in Conversation. It's what we're calling it. Uh, thank you very much to John Glenn and everyone who helped set up the interview. Uh, don't forget, if you've not listened to this week's special Easter Monday special, uh, then it's before this episode. I think that's how it's going to work. Uh, and also the week before, because it never got uploaded. I'm sorry. It, I Don't blame me. Um, and we shall see you next week for our marvellous uh, Monday Movies episode when we talk all about Endgame, which is out on Thursday. Today is Tuesday. Um, this will probably be up on Wednesday. Who knows? It might be up on today. I don't I don't know how it works. Um, but we'll all be back on Monday for our Endgame special. Goodbye! You've been listening to a podcast from Wickham Sound. To find out more, head to wickhamsound.org.uk